The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. This past week, um, I found something that was lost, or I thought was lost, and it was my old Zanga page. Does anyone remember that? It's like the, it was like the, one of the first blogging sites that ever came out, and I thought it was gone forever. And, but I found a way, actually, you can archive or you can import an archive of all your old posts. And I had a bunch of posts from like over 10 years ago that I thought were long gone. And so a few nights ago, um, I was up until like 1 in the morning reading through all these old posts that I wrote. So many great memories, and especially stories of my oldest son, Caleb, um, all these conversations I had when, with him when he was a toddler, I'd completely forgotten. And I realized some of these actually make pretty good sermon illustrations. So I want to read one for you dated in February of 2007 when Caleb was only four years old. And I wrote this. So I'm about to run to a meeting at work when I get a call from home. It's my wife, Kim. Caleb wants to talk to you. And he's very sad. She hands the phone over to Caleb. Appa, I'm very sad. Why are you so sad, I said. Because I was watching the animal show about polar bears. Now, my boys love animal shows, so sometimes I'll record shows they can watch later. And so Kim let them watch a recent documentary I recorded about polar bears in the Arctic. So what happened that made you sad, I asked him. The daddy polar bear was really hungry, and he ate the baby polar bear. (laughs) And at this point, he's trying to hold back his tears. And my mind is racing. I thought about all the times that I'd wrestle him to the ground and gnaw on his ribs because I like ribs. And I thought about all the times that I pretended to eat his eyeballs and tell him they tasted like juicy grapes. I like grapes. But what can a father say in that moment to calm his son? And with all the godly wisdom that I could muster, I said, Caleb, no matter how hungry daddy gets, I promise I will never eat you. And Caleb is still seeing a therapist. No, I'm just kidding. kidding. But in all seriousness, you can understand how in the mind of a four-year-old, this is a very traumatic experience. Right? I'm his dad. The one person besides maybe his mother who's supposed to swear to love, to protect and provide for him and love him, not eat him. Yet in one brief moment, our relationship was tested because everything he knew to be true about me as his father was flipped upside down. And this bothered him so much that he he had to call me at work and he had to hear from me directly that I do love him, that I don't wish harm upon him. I'm not going to eat him. This morning, as we continue in our Advent series, we're going to be looking at the story of another father and son whose world is about to be flipped upside down. And it's not a dad and a four-year-old boy. It's actually a man who's well over 100 years old and his son named Isaac. You may already know this story well. God asks Abraham to do the unspeakable, to take his beloved son and sacrifice him. And an angel of the Lord stops him in the nick of time. But we shouldn't let our familiarity with the story or its happy ending excuse the horror of God's request. 
I mean, this practice was categorically condemned by God, and yet here God actually is commanding it. It seems like a massive contradiction, doesn't it? What in the world is God up to? If you've been on uh, a journey of faith for any amount of time, chances are you've traveled down some dark roads of disappointment with God, maybe even despair. Perhaps there are things you believe to be true about God which have been flipped upside down or some unforeseen circumstances, unanswered prayer, and you've asked yourself that same question. Who are you, God? Can I really trust you? Do you love me? So what do you do when it seems like God has violated his own character? When it seems that he's broken his promise to love you, to protect you and provide for you? I think we'll discover the answer to this as we get into the text here in Genesis 22. But before we do so, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that we can gather here, meet you, Lord, be in your presence. No matter how cold it is outside, Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit can warm our hearts, Lord, as we hear a word from you. And so, Lord, that is our desire, that you would soften our hearts, that we might receive, Lord, what you have to teach us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. This is the reading of God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now at this point, Abraham is approaching the end of his life. He's well over 100 years old. But on this day, he's probably wishing that he were already dead. I think it's really hard to grasp the gravity of what God is asking of Abraham until you first understand how he got here. Now, when we're first introduced to Abraham in the Bible, about 50 years earlier, he is a spry 75-year-old. And we're told that his wife Sarah is barren. She cannot have a child. And this is devastating, especially in an age and in a culture where your children are your lifeline and your legacy. He wanted nothing more than a son. And things were really looking bleak until we get to Genesis chapter 12. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So at an age when most of us are winding down and we're retiring to Florida, God calls Abram to leave his country, and he tells him that he's going to make a great nation out of him, that all the families in the world will be blessed through him. Now up until this point, Abram, all he has is this knucklehead nephew named Lot, right? So you can imagine the the joy of this unexpected promise between him and Sarah. And so they wait. And they wait. And they wait. And ten years pass, and nothing happens. And doubt begins to creep in. Despair 
And eventually they grow tired of waiting. And they decide to take matters into their own hands. And at the suggestion of Sarah, Abram takes the maidservant Hagar as a surrogate. And she bears a son. And he's named Ishmael. Now Abraham is 86 years old. And as far as they're concerned, God's promise has been fulfilled. Not quite in the way that they had hoped, but fulfilled nonetheless. And then another 13 years pass. And just as Ishmael is about to assume all the birthrights of a firstborn son, God appears again before Abraham. Now he's 99 years old. And he restates his original promise. He's going to have a son. And it's going to be through Sarah, just as he had promised. And by this time next year, he would be born. This is probably the first time we see LOL in the Bible. Right? Abraham and Sarah were told, laugh out loud at this ridiculous promise. She's 90. He's 99. How could it be? But sure enough, after 25 years of waiting, quarter century, God's promise is finally fulfilled. Sarah bears a son, and they name him Isaac. And this man and woman who are old enough to be Isaac's great-grandparents finally have their son. He's the promised child. Finally, we have our happy ending, right? Wrong. (laughs) God's not done with this story yet, is he? When we come to Genesis 22, the fairy tale becomes a nightmare. And God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable. Now, listen, for Abraham, God wasn't just asking him to sacrifice his son. He was asking Abraham to destroy all of God's promises, which were represented by and embodied in that child. Imagine the the conflict and the confusion, his sadness, even his anger towards God. As many of you may know, we we have three kids, Kim and I, and um, they're the pride and joy of our lives, two boys and a girl. And after starting with two boys, um, we prayed that God would give us a girl, and God answered our prayer. And to be honest, at that point, our family felt complete. We had a boy, we had a girl, we were good. Now, this is before we started coming to ICC. Three kids here is like halfway point, right? (laughs) But... Seven years ago, we found out that uh, Kim was pregnant again, and it was a total surprise. And I'll be honest, the first week or so, I was thinking, man, four kids, (laughs) that's a lot of kids. (laughs) And as you can see here, my hands are pretty full just with three of them. But after the initial shock wore off, I really started to look forward to having another child. I know Kim did. I grew up in a family of six, and... We were hoping for another girl. You know, we wanted Sayla to have a baby sister. And I remember visiting the doctor a couple months later, and we couldn't find a heartbeat. And we were devastated. You know, it happened so quickly. And it seemed that we, we just found out that she was pregnant, and the baby was already gone. And I remember taking Kim to the hospital to have the procedure done where the child is removed from her uterus and seeing her after it was done, and she was just inconsolable. Just weeping in a way I've never seen her weep before. And I remember not long after that, sitting at the doctor's office and asking him if we could find out the gender of 
of the child, and he looked at us and he said, what do you mean? It's just a piece of tissue. It's not a, it's not a child. And I remember thinking, what, what are you talking about? How could you be so flippant? It's the piece of tissue. That's our baby. And I remember I seriously just wanted to punch him in the face. But consider the utter anguish of Abraham. I mean, for us, the child came and went so unexpectedly. For Abraham, 25 long years of expectation. He must have thought, did I hear you right? This wasn't just flippant. This was cruel. God was actually asking Abraham to plunge a knife into the chest of his son. Why in the world would God put him through this? But you'll notice when God asks Abraham to do this, he's not ignorant of what he is asking. He acknowledges the weight of this request when he says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now there are a couple things that we shouldn't miss. First, as far as everyone else in the world was concerned, Abraham had two sons, right? Ishmael and Isaac. But notice in God's eyes, he only had one son, one true son, Isaac. This doesn't mean that God didn't love Ishmael. He shows great compassion to him and his mother, Hagar. But listen, Ishmael represented an act of the flesh. Isaac represented the promise of God. And so in God's eyes, Isaac is Abraham's one and only true son. Second, God acknowledges that this is a child whom Abraham loves deeply. And we know this because he goes out of his way to say, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is actually the very first time the word love is used in the Bible. And this is meaningful because when you study the Bible, there's a principle of interpretation or hermeneutics, and it's called the law of first mention. And what this means is, is that the first time a word is found in the Bible, take special note. It holds extra weight because it's establishing a foundation for that word and it sets the course for how it's to be interpreted. Okay? So keep that in mind. And then God says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, God is very specific about where he wants Abraham to go. He wants him to go to the land of Moriah, and he has a very specific mountain in mind where he wants this all to go down. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now Abraham does exactly as God instructs him, but he has three whole days to think about it, to back out. He has every opportunity to run away, but he doesn't. How is he able to go on and not collapse with a broken heart? I think we're given a hint in verse 4. It says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
See, for the first time in his journey, he's able to set his eyes on the place God has in mind, the final destination. And he seems to find renewed strength and the faith to press on. And you see this faith in his response to the two young men who come along with him. He instructs them to stay, and he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What he's saying is we're both leaving, but we're both coming back together. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. It's just father and son now. Isaac has all the wood for the sacrifice mounted where? It's on his back. And as they're hiking up this final hill, Isaac is asking about a lamb, but he's really addressing an elephant, isn't he? It's the elephant in the room. Where's the animal that's going to be sacrificed? I got the wood. You've got the fire. Am I being punked? (laughs) His father's response is kind of vague. And cryptic, isn't it? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And I don't think Abraham truly understood the irony of that statement in that moment. But he did know that he was really old, and Isaac was young, and Isaac was much faster than him. And he didn't want to chase him around the mountain (laughs) all day, telling him like what was about to happen. In verse 9, here comes the moment of truth. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out to his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son, from me. Just as Abraham is about to do the dirty deed, an angel of the Lord appears suddenly and stops him. And Isaac's life is spared. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Upon lifting up his eyes a second time, he now finds a ram caught in a thicket. And although Isaac is spared, the ram is not. This animal takes his place. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed. 
my voice. And the story closes with God repeating his original promise to Abraham that God would bless his descendants and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So we go from fairy tale to nightmare to a happy ending. And although it all ends well, I think the story begs two questions. One, how in the world did Abraham find the faith to obey God? And two, why in the world did God put Abraham through all this? How did Abraham have the faith to obey? Somehow Abraham was able to reconcile in his mind what God was asking of him in that moment with what God had already promised. How? The New Testament actually gives us some great insight into this. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here it is. He considered that God was able to even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So somewhere in the process of obeying, Abraham reconciled how God was going to be true to his original promise, even though he appeared to be contradicting it now. In his mind, the only way this was going to be possible was if God resurrected his son after he killed him. And that's pretty remarkable. But here's the thing. Abraham ended up being wrong. And here's another thing. God was true to his promise, but not at all in the way that Abraham had figured. Deliverance would not come through Isaac's death and resurrection. It would come through God's intervention and God's provision. We're not much different from Abraham, are we? We often define answers to prayer in very narrow terms with God, right? Like, you have to heal her, Lord. You have to get me that job, God. I need to get into this school. And the truth is, we don't leave room for God to fulfill his promises in a way that goes beyond our own set ideas or our own understanding. Now, a couple weeks ago, I met with a guy who, he doesn't go to this church, but he wanted some counsel. He was almost 40 years old, and he was struggling with this girl that he was pursuing and praying about for over a year. And he wasn't sure if he should move on or press on. And I could hear his hurt and his frustration towards God as he was sharing. And I know this is a really solid Christian guy. <clears throat> He'd been serving others. He serves others. He serves the church. And he felt like God had blessed every area of his life, you know, his families, his friends, his church, his career, except for one thing. He couldn't find a wife. All his friends were married except him. And he wanted it to work out with this girl, but she just didn't seem interested. And, you know, I was already chewing on this passage, and so I told him about Abraham and his dilemma, and I challenged him with this. I said, is the only way that you can define God as being faithful in your life for you to get this girl? And he had to stop, and he had to think about that. And I think we all do. Where do you dictate for God what his faithfulness in your life should look like? 
Abraham guessed wrong in how God would answer. But here's what he got right. In Hebrews 11, we're also told, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Has anybody been there? By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He didn't know where he was going, but he did know where he was headed. To Abraham, this world was just a hotel, but heaven was his home. Verse 12, Hebrews 11, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Listen, even though Isaac survived that day, Abraham never actually saw with his own eyes the promise of God fulfilled. We're told that he died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So if he never got to see the promise fulfilled with his own eyes, what was the promise really about? Here it is in verse 13, Hebrews 11. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God's promise to Abraham was not any old promise. It's a promise he swore by himself, meaning God secured his promise with the greatest collateral possible, God. Not on some lesser thing like the gold of the temple or his mother's grave, but himself. This also means that God is not just the promiser who fulfills. He is the fulfillment of the promise. And this is why Paul says, for all the promises of God, find their yes in him, meaning Jesus. He doesn't just give us his word. He is the word. He's not just our promise. He's our prize, my refuge, my reward. And this is what served as Abraham's steadfast anchor, even in his dark night of the soul. This is really important. Because the only way that you will be able to climb your own Mount, own Mount Moriah is if we see what Abraham saw. That the greatest reward for your faith is not seeing every promise of God fulfilled in your life, but it's seeing that God himself is the fulfillment of every promise. The greatest reward for your faith is not seeing every promise of God fulfilled in your life, 
but it's seeing that God himself is the fulfillment of every promise. This is what Abraham saw. This is what God wants you to see. This is how we obey in faith. So why would God put Abraham through all of this? I think Nancy Guthrie says it so well. Why would God ask Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice? Is God trying to teach us that we should be willing to sacrifice what is most precious to us? No. This story is not recorded to inspire sacrifice to God. Instead, it paints in vivid colors the sacrifice of God. The point of this story is not to convince you that you must be willing to sacrifice to God what is most precious to you, but rather to prepare you to take in the magnitude of the gift when you see that God was willing to sacrifice what was most precious to him, his own beloved son, for you. At just the right moment, The angel of the Lord stops Abraham, and we're told Abraham lifts up his eyes, now a second time. And what does he find? A ram with his head caught in a thicket. Now, we got a hint of this last week in Genesis chapter 3 upon the fall. But this ram takes Isaac's place on the altar. And this little exchange on a hill thousands of years ago would set in motion the most central truth of the gospel, what theologians call substitutionary atonement. And from the fall to Abraham, to Moses, and the Passover lamb, and the Levitical laws, and the day of atonement, and finally we find a baby in a feeding trough. This is all God's way of telling us that he himself would provide the sacrifice to take our place, and it would come in the form of his beloved son. And now it's our turn to say to the Lord, now I know that you love me, seeing you have not withheld your only son from me. In Abraham's darkest moment, when it seems painfully obvious that God does not love him, God is actually revealing how great, in fact, his love was. Not just for Abraham, but for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what Christmas is all about about God giving us the greatest, most costliest, and precious gift, his son, the true promised child, so that we might find redemption and be brought back into relationship with him. But the story doesn't end there, and we would be remiss if we only focused upon the sacrifice of God the Father. Because although little is said about Isaac's willingness to participate in all of this, Jesus knew what was being asked of him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he climbs his own Mount Moriah, and he cries out, Father, is there any other way? There is no other way. And so 2,000 years after Isaac, another young man would carry wood upon his back, and he would travel up that same hill, and he would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.
In the 17th century, uh, there was an Italian painter named Michelangelo Caravaggio who gained notoriety for the ways he captured raw human emotions through his use of lighting and contrast. And you can see it in full display here in in this painting, Abraham and Isaac, where he brings to life all of the suspense and all the emotion of that day. Yet if you notice, he includes one detail. Tucked away in the quarters that ran, almost hidden in the darkness, so subtle. And yet it's the centerpiece of this entire story. Unless we miss it, Caravaggio has his angel pointing us towards it, directing Abraham and all of us towards that ram. Now of all things, why would God's provision be a ram caught in a thicket? A ram is an adult male sheep, and a thicket is a bush of thorns. And if you recall from Genesis 3, thorns on this earth are a product of the curse. So you see, the crown of thorns was more than just a symbol of mockery. It was a sign that God's son would assume the curse and punishment that sin brought into this world, and he would place it firmly on his own head. And he did it willingly, and he scorned its shame. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the miracle of Christmas. Not only that God the Father would provide his beloved son as a sacrifice, but that his son would willingly take our sin and punishment in our place. I want to close by reading a blog post from a friend, uh, Esther Lee, and um, I know many of you know her personally and have been praying for them. Um, She's given me permission to share this. And Um, I've spoken about her seven-year-old daughter, Ava, before, who has this amazing childlike faith, and she's battling a very rare form of leukemia that has ravaged her body, and to be honest, she's running out of time and options, and it's going to take a miracle for her to be healed. I just saw an update posted last night, and it it doesn't look good. Please pray for her and her family, if you would. But I wanted to share this particular entry because um, I think it captures the intense struggle with God and how we're to press on. She wrote this uh, a week or two ago. It's been a few days since I've updated, and it's partly because there isn't much to say, partly because it's so exhausting to say anything at all, and mainly because it's, it's just been so good and warm and cozy to be home together, and I've wanted to sit undisturbed in that for a while. Writing is a good release, but it usually means I have to feel things and process stuff. And a few, teams, a few times I sat in silence, letting the weight of this life bear down on me, I almost fainted from the sorrow. So I haven't been so eager to meditate on it and express it in words. How do I explain it? It's like laying down on a road filled with jagged rock, rocks and feeling the agonizing pressure of a steamroller crush one bone, one tendon, one nerve of your body at a time. It's unspeakable. It hurts like hell. The pain comes from watching Ava eagerly tell me that she cannot wait to watch the next DreamWorks movie, The Boss Baby. It's playing in March of 2017. It's four months away. And the most sickening thought enters my mind. Will she still be alive then? The pain is from imagining waking up without Ava's grinning face to greet me 
It's from knowing that there's a cancer raging in her, desiring nothing more than to eat her alive. It's from the reality that one day I may call for her, long for her, beg for her, and it will all be in vain. To perhaps never have the chance to hold her again, to watch her grow up, to hear her ideas, to behold her beauty and her grace. These things break my will to carry on. Suddenly, all the weeping that has been bottled up, all the sadness I've had to stuff back down from my throat, all the pent-up fear I've covered over by telling people that we are okay come tumbling out fast and furious. And I'm on the floor, arms raised and crossed over my face, cowering in terror for what is to come. And I'm raising the white flag of surrender as if God is looming over me, ready to kick me again. But listen, Esther, listen like never before. The truth is this. God is love. God is love. God is love. And perfect love casts out fear. I'm truly broken over my life right now. I wish grace would fall faster and harder upon our lives. But maybe somehow this season of long-suffering is grace. Somehow it will produce something far more beautiful than we could have ever experienced without it. Somehow it will leave behind gold where there once was only crude rock. Somehow. When I read this, I hear the heart of Father Abraham as he walks up Mount Moriah. When all hope seems lost, sometimes all we can do is remind ourselves of what we know to be true. God is love. God is love. God is love. I want to close with one last video. It's just one minute long. Um, I think what encourages me most, though, is, is not just seeing the faith of um, Esther, her mother, but Ava. This seven-year-old girl is enduring incredible physical pain, and yet she's not afraid to die. Because like Abraham, her hope is not set on this world. And Just please watch this video as we close. Thank you.